So uh, welcome to the next in our series of uh, science and cooking lectures. Um, as always, I'll start by acknowledging our uh, wonderful sponsorship. Uh, Jose Andres, uh, Think Food Group. Um, the Alicia Foundation, both for financial and intellectual support. Montferrand, Whole Foods at River Street. They supply all the supplies for our lab. We, all, we after all, we eat our lab. Uh, Fusion Chef by Julabo and the bank in Catalonia. Also, um, this time, yes, thank you. Um, this time, a special thanks to uh, a couple of local restaurants. Um, Chef Barry Maiden at uh, Hungry Mother Restaurant and uh, also a special thanks to Oliana, uh, Chef Anna Sortum, Mara Kilpatrick and Cassie Puma. Um, Oliana and particularly Anna supply also uh, through uh, one of the other restaurants the lunches that we have with the chefs every Tuesday and I thank them for that as well. Um, also, a couple of upcoming lectures. Um, we have a special lecture by Harold McGee and Dave Arnold. Um, it's the Science of Cocktails. It will be held this Thursday at uh, 7 p.m., November 10th, in the lecture hall in the Physics Building, Jefferson 250. Um, it's free, but you do have to register. There's not that many seats. Uh, and you go to this uh, link to uh, register. Um, next week, this same series um, will be uh, David Chang. Uh, he'll talk next Monday. And after the science parts uh, today, we have Dan Barber uh, speaking today. Now, I'm going to give a brief introduction because, of course, we have to have our equation of the week. I'll describe that. But then I'll let um, Harold McGee, who we're again very fortunate to have with us, uh, give a small introduction about some of the science behind what we'll hear from Dan. So this week, um, and actually going through the theme for the talk next Monday, uh, we're dealing a lot with bacteria. And bacteria are really ubiquitous, they're all over. Here's an example of some bacteria, but uh, if you look in soil, you'll find an enormous number of bacteria, many of them, many of which, in fact, the vast majority of which have never even been cultured. So there's an enormous number of bacteria. They play an absolutely essential role in all the aspects of uh, growing food. And we'll hear, I'm sure, more about uh, the growth of food from both Harold and Dan, but the bacteria are an absolutely essential uh, component of them. Uh, what's become also uh, very apparent more recently is that all of us in our guts have bacteria, an enormous number of bacteria. In fact, if you count the number of bacteria cells in your gut, you will find that they outnumber the number of cells in your body. And these play a very important symbiotic role in digestion. And bacteria, um, at least in the early stages, have a very simple type of growth. Basically, you can imagine that they divide every 
uh, lifetime of their bacteria. Uh, very often, it's r rather rapid. Some of the rapid, more rapid-growing bacteria might divide every 20 minutes. So after 20 minutes, a single bacterium becomes two. Another 20 minutes, these two bacteria become four. Another 20 minutes, these two bacteria become eight. So it's increasing in this power law way. And we can write this as every uh, 20 minutes, every time constant, the bacteria double. So the number of bacteria are given by uh, the initial number, which let's say if you start with a single bacterium, is 1, times 2 raised to the power of the number of doubling times. So it's t, the time that you're looking, divided by the number, number of doubling times. Now, when we write this, we like to write it more generally. So we replace 2. Rather than we putting 2, we put the natural uh, e, the uh, exponent for the natural logarithm. And that way, we can write this same equation as an exponential. And it's n exponential t to the tau. This is the equation of the weak, and it's really a very simple equation, but it's a rather remarkable equation. Let me show you one simple example of what this means. If you look at the mass of a single bacterium, I made a simple estimate uh, in my office just before coming here. The mass of a single bacterium, a single bacterium is roughly a cubic micron, and its mass is roughly about 10 to the minus 15 kilograms. And we live on the Earth. The Earth's mass is 6 times 10 to the 24 kilograms. Rather different. One bacterium, the mass of the Earth. If I told you that a typical bacterium doubles every 20 minutes, how long would it take if this continued to grow at that exponential rate, how long do you think it would take for that one poor little single bacterium to grow to be the same mass as the Earth? Six months. Six months. Anybody else? I hear six months. 24 hours. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's optimistic. Anybody else? Two weeks, one month, six months, 24 hours. Well, we can calculate it using that equation of the week. It's 43 hours. Whoever said one day is awfully close. 43 hours, the power of exponential growth. Needless to say, things don't grow indefinitely exponentially. You'd see what would be happening. We'd be overrun by, by bacteria. But at least at the early stages, Growth is really exponential, and it grows very, very rapidly. OK, with that, let me turn it over to Harold, who's somewhere? Behind you. Harold. There you are. <laughs> You're sneaking up on me. <laughs> OK, thanks, Dave. Uh, got one. Thanks. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, especially a pleasure to be here to introduce Dan Barber. 
And what I want to do, because uh, he's going to be talking in part about flavor, uh, I wanted to tell you a little bit about some things that have been going on in the scientific realm that I think bear uh, really interestingly on flavor and what it means, how we should think about it, and how I think we're kind of on the verge of a, um, a kind of renaissance in farming where we're gonna get a whole lot better stuff, uh, which is good news for everyone. Um, anyway, I'm gonna concentrate on herbs and vegetables. Uh, and I'll just say very quickly that uh, uh, things in nature have the molecules they do for reasons. And uh, in the case of uh, fruits, it turns out that the reason is that the plant wants animals to come take the fruit uh, and take the fruit with its seeds someplace else and leave the seeds there so that the plant can spread, so that its seeds can spread. So it makes fruits delicious to one animal, one animal or another, and evolution has given us lots of different uh, kind of symbioses along those lines uh, in, order to, uh, uh, in order to reproduce, in order to multiply. So fruits are in, made intentionally delicious. And that's, uh, it's a wonderful story, uh, but uh, it's not as interesting as some of the other stories that I'm gonna tell you about. I'm gonna talk about herbs and vegetables, and the question is why do they have the flavors they do? So it turns out that uh, whereas fruit flavors are really complicated, uh, they have hundreds and hundreds of different aroma molecules in them typically, uh, herbs and spices are relatively simple. So if you think about the aroma of a, of a strawberry, there, there are hundreds of different components, chemical components to that aroma. And the plant is, is generating them in order to get you interested. In the case of herbs and spices, it's usually one or just a couple of uh, chemicals, and uh, they characterize, whoops, characterize the, uh, that particular uh, uh, herb. So that's the molecule that makes anise taste the way it does. That's the molecule that makes van vanilla taste the way it does. And you can pretty much identify the, the herb or spice by that particular molecule. Now, when I discovered this years ago, I thought that was really interesting, but I had my doubts as to whether if fruits are so complicated, herbs could really be reduced to a molecule. And so, it, you know, I went to the Sigma catalog. I saw that they were, oh, ah, rats, I <laughs> gave it away. Uh, the buttons are too close on this thing. Um, I saw that you could buy thymol, which is the, um, the active ingredient in uh, thyme. And so I ordered it and uh, got the bottle and was shocked to see this, that it's toxic, it's harmful. It's harmful by inhalation, like smelling a sprig of thyme. It's, uh, it's harmful contact with skin or swallowed, which is what we do with thyme all the time. So uh, this got me really interested in what was going on with the, the flavors of herbs and spices. Why do they have these molecules if they're toxic and what are we doing using them? So, uh, it turns out plants uh, need those compounds to wage chemical warfare. They're vulnerable. Uh, so uh, thyme, rosemary, sage, things like that come from the Mediterranean. If you go to the Mediterranean and look at the landscape, a lot of it is like this. Plants uh, in it are very exposed. And if you uh, take a close look at the ground, what you find is that plants in, in the family that give us thyme 
and rosemary and oregano. It is one uh, family. Uh, uh, they can be growing out of a little hole in the rock. This is a, ro a rosemary sprig growing out of what looks like nothing. This is limestone. Uh, so you either make thorns to prevent uh, animals from eating you, or you make really strong chemicals to pre prevent animals from eating you. So that's the, uh, very quickly, the story with herbs and spices. And it turns out that we as cooks can make those things uh, not toxic and not uh, annoying, but delicious by dilution. If you imagine that you're a slug and you need something to eat and you crawl onto a, a rosemary plant and you chew on the rosemary, it's not gonna be very pleasant, right? Anyone who's ever tried to eat a little bit of a fresh herb, you know it's, it's not something you do. You put it in the stew and you just get a few of the molecules and that's really nice. So that's what we're able to, to do with uh, those ingredients. Now, how about uh, vegetables, which we eat in much larger quantities? Is the same kind of thing going on there? Uh, and it turns out that the answer is yes. It turns out that um, the, the molecules that are typically made by the plant when you bite into it, or when you crush it or cut it, that kind of thing, are uh, fragments of fatty acids. This is too big a molecule for us to smell, but this is small enough to travel through the air and get into our nose. And it turns out that the aromas that we associate with green leafy vegetables and so on are six carbon chain molecules. The ones that are mushroomy are eight carbon chains, cucumbery, nine carbon chains. Uh, uh, this, by the way, is uh, hexanal, which is the, the six carbon chain, and that's by far the most common, it and its relatives. And it turns out that those molecules are um, defensive compounds. So here's a, an experiment that was done in the lab where they, they grew some plants on a Petri dish and they um, exposed one plate to that green compound, not by damaging the cells, but by, or by damaging the plants, but just by uh, blowing in a little bit of the, uh, of the pure molecule. Uh, and this one they left alone and they inoculated both of them with uh, a disease-causing fungus. And this one succumbed and that one didn't. Uh, so that's the reason that these plants produce these compounds. It's not to please us, it's to defend themselves. And it turns out that uh, the, the uh, molecules that are released when you break into the plant and allow those uh, polyunsaturated fats to get broken down are not just immediately toxic to insects and other things, they're also signals. So they diffuse through the leaf and then um, get transformed to some extent, and then over the course of several minutes, they do a couple of different things. They're received by nearby leaves and nearby plants, which are primed to realize that there's some predation going on and it's time to up your defenses. So these molecules will actually leave this leaf, go to other leaves, and induce those leaves to produce more of their defensive compounds. And remember that defensive compounds include flavors, as we saw in the uh, herbs and spices. The other thing it does is that it, uh, uh, these molecules, which are now signals, will attract uh, predators on the insects that are causing the trouble. Uh, and this is a wonderful story, that these, these molecules that come from the damage of the leaf actually attract, wa attract wasps to come eat the caterpillars. 
So there's this intricate network of, of uh, chemical communication going on all through these volatile uh, compounds. Uh, now it turns out that uh, when plants are attacked, as I say, they, they produce these molecules. The molecules in turn act as signals and tell the rest of the plant to, to get ready and to defend itself. And if you look at the, uh, the amounts of things like antioxidants in a plant when it's grown, say, in conventional agriculture, it's got no insects to worry about, and organic ag agriculture when sometimes it has a lot of insects to worry about, that you end up with higher levels of antioxidants and often higher levels of flavor compounds in the situation where the plant is under stress because stress induces the generation of these protective defensive compounds. It turns out that uh, fortunately for the plant, and this is something I think may, may become uh, pretty widely used, you don't need the actual insect to be there to cause the stress because the, uh, the outer uh, exoskeleton of insects contains this very, um, um, it, it, it's an unusual compound called chitin. You find it in uh, insect exoskeletons, crustacean shells, like shrimp and crabs and so on, and also in mold cell walls. And it turns out that insects and molds are two important um, uh, pathogens on uh, plants. So it can recognize when it's being touched by these molecules, and that's part of what induces these defenses. It turns out that if you take that, uh, those exoskeletons and you just grind them up and then apply them as uh, a preparation, chitosan is a, is a kind of breakdown product of chitin, and just spray the plants with that and not have actual insects around, they, th that, that spraying will induce the defensive systems in the plant. So this is an example of an experiment where basil plants were exposed to chitosan, and you can see that the treated plants produced way more of the essential oil, which is a protective uh, set of molecules, than the plants that weren't treated at all. So you can fool the plant into thinking it's being attacked and up its defenses and thereby up its um, flavor and, and antioxidants and other useful things. Uh, it turns out that the, the microbes that uh, uh, Dave was just talking about, which are ubiquitous and uh, plentiful in the soil, they also provide stress uh, on, on plants and cause them to, uh, in some cases, die. So uh, here, are, here are plants that are grown on a petri dish, and this is a wall that uh, allows volatile molecules to go through but prevents actual physical contact with uh, bacterium that's growing on this side. If there's no bacterium growing, the plants grow fine. If this one, um, uh, Pseudomonas, is growing here, it kills them. Uh, but it turns out that uh, it depends on the bacterium and it depends on the plant. So here are basil plants, uh, the one on the left exposed to a particular strain of Bacillus subtilis, and it, you can see it's grown much more in the same period of time, and it's producing much more in, uh, in the essential oils. That's what this graph is. Water, E. coli as a bacterial control, and then this particular Bacillus subtilis, which stimulates growth and also stimulates aroma production. Uh, a um, highly prized uh, food that goes on our table, in fact, is a, a prime example 
of what's going on underground that we're only just beginning to understand fully, and that's the truffle. Truffles uh, also stress plants and boost their, um, um, their production of good and useful things. So this is uh, a hazel tree. Truffles are uh, symbiotic with various trees, hazels among them, so it infects the root of this tree and helps it gather nutrients from the soil. At the same time, there's always this, or often this characteristic, what's called burnt patch around uh, a tree that's infected with truffles. Uh, it's called burnt because it looks as though there's been a, a fire, very little is growing there, but in fact, it's the truffle that's causing that. And it, in fact, it's the volatile compounds from the truffle, the, the very compounds that we enjoy when we eat them. And this is an experiment showing that the black truffle, uh, tuber melanosporum, uh, when it's volatiles, not the, not the um, uh, truffle itself or its spores, but just the volatile uh, aroma molecules are, um, uh, are given to seedlings, those seedlings don't grow. In water, fine. In two other species of truffle, uh, fine and not so fine, but tuber melanosporum uh, does a good job of knocking it out altogether. Um, and it turns out that what the truffle does, this infection of the plant root and this uh, complex symbiosis that it has, of course, killing other plants around the tree is also good for the tree because it means that there's less competition for nutrients. Uh, this this uh, cycle where you start with a tuber, it makes spores, the spores get into the soil, the, uh, they germinate, and then actually this uh, uh, black area around the root and the gray one underneath it, that's all from the truffle. It's not the plant, it's the truffle that's growing there. Uh, th this situation, the, this symbiosis between a microbe of some kind and a plant, is more of the rule than the exception. Uh, it turns out that most plants are like that, crop plants of all kinds included, and we're just beginning to understand how it is that uh, that symbiosis uh, affects productivity and affects the quality of the, of the uh, produce that you get. So uh, we've been hearing a lot in this course about um, modernist cuisine, that is to say the use of modern techniques to uh, make interesting, new, innovative, uh, creative sorts of foods. It seems to me that maybe even longer lasting than that development is what you might call modernist farming, which is taking advantage of everything we know about, uh, about food, from how it's uh, produced by the plants, why it ends up with the qualities it does, to how it ends up being used in the kitchen, taking all that information and integrating it and uh, coming up with better ways to produce better food. And uh, Dan Barber and Stone Barnes have been real pioneers in this movement, I would say. Uh, they're doing, you know, it, it's one thing to see all this lab work that I've been showing you. Uh, the real challenge is gonna take all that information and turn it in, into, uh, into something real. And that's something that's been going on at Stone Barns now for several years. And uh, uh, Dan has been intimately involved in that from the beginning and throughout the process. And it seems to me that uh, it's, uh, it's, it's just a, a remarkable 
uh, symbiosis. I mean, uh, a chef who knows more than anyone in the world about deliciousness, getting involved in the production of food uh, from the farm to even before the farm, because uh, uh, Dan will be, be talking a bit about breeding as well. Uh, so this is a, a really exciting time. Um, and the, the translation of all this from, from kind of uh, abstract science to something real on our plate and better, more sustainable ways of growing our food and growing better food, uh, I think are, are almost here. So uh, Dan Barber is here. Dan. Yeah. <clears throat> Being called revolutionary by Harold McGee is like uh, Jesus Christ calling you the, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> can we go to that, uh, can we go to this next slide here? Um, so, uh, can, we, can we agree that we are obsessed with looking to the past for flavor. Maybe, maybe it's, a, it's a unique sort of American obsession, like heirloom this, and uh, uh, heritage breed that, and uh, stone, stone ground, old style, you know, old stuff. Um, chefs are enamored. Uh, chefs are particularly enamored with this, if you come to Blue Hill, um, you will see it all over our menu. It is the, the same thing that our grandparents and great-grandparents uh, told us uh, a million times. I'm not talking about the one where uh, they walked to school for 50 miles, barefoot, in the snow, backwards. Um, I'm talking about the one where, where they say that tomatoes were more delicious when uh, they were our age. Tomatoes, Thanksgiving turkeys, turnips, peaches, nectarines, they don't grow them like they used to, right? Everyone's heard that? And on this one, our grandparents, they're right. There are exceptions. There's great farmers markets. There's fantastic farmers. But for the most part, the last uh, 100 years or so, we have killed flavor. We should talk about this, the, the death of flavor. Because it's not a coincidence. There's a, there's a kind of narrative arc here. And um, it's not a nice one. So we'll look at that, and then... Uh, not to be uh, so morbid about it, you don't think I'm some depressed New Yorker. Um, I'd like to, to talk about how we might recapture some of the flavors uh, that our grandparents enjoyed and, and, and look to a future of, of delicious food that Harold, um, Harold uh, uh, suggested. Okay, so first slide, if I can get to, I don't know, uh, through here. Sorry. Oh, sorry, okay, there we go, play, yeah, right. 
That's one more time. These Harvard guys, man, happens all the time. Thanks, dude. Okay, so we'll look at this through through a dish uh, at Blue Hill. It is uh, it is the simplest dish we serve, and, and and it might be the most delicious. It has absolutely nothing to do with me. It has to do with um, with great wheat and exceptionally good pigs. So again, how did we get to a point where 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 we went wrong with all of this, like historically, and how might we recapture these flavors and, and not to be competitive with our, with our grandparents, but maybe even surpass the flavors that they enjoyed as, as, as children or as youths. And we'll start, so we'll start with the brioche anyway, um, this whole grain brioche that we make at the restaurant. Not long ago, I asked um, the pastry chef at, at Blue Hill Stone Barns, uh, Alex Gruner, I asked him that instead of making like the traditional whole, uh, you know, the, the traditional white flour brioche, I asked him to make a whole wheat brioche. He looked at me like I was fucking crazy. <laughs> Why would you bastardize the most, the most incredible loaf of bread ever invented? Unless you wanted to create some, some Berkeley, like hippie summer of love loaf. <laughs> right? And he had a point because whole wheat has a really bad reputation. And, uh, and there's a good reason for it. It doesn't taste good. And I'm not just talking in this euphemistic sort of chef like, uh, lacks flavor. I mean, it tastes bad. They're off flavors, <laughs> right? Bitter and, and the rest. That, that wheat doesn't taste good is really ironic because wheat is grown on more land in the world than any other crop. And we eat, Americans eat, a lot of it, 135 pounds per person. We eat more wheat than all red meat combined. We eat more wheat than poultry and fish combined. We eat more wheat than eggs and cheese combined. So, so really the question is, how did we get to the point that we're growing and eating so much of something that doesn't taste good? And for that, we should probably look sort of at the beginning, which is like you know, 10,000 years ago when we, when we first started farming, up until pretty much the 1800s. I'm gonna be very, very simplistic about this. I say this, I'm gonna say this a few more times just so everyone knows. This is very, very simplistic. But for thousands of years, wheat has, wheat has been part of this like very diverse farming system. It was designed to keep fertility in the soil. Farmers have added fertility to the soil primarily in two ways. Again, it's a bit reductive, but primarily in two ways. One is you graze a, a, an animal, a cattle, let's say, on the land and, and that manure ultimately provides fertility for the soil, or you rotate crops like leguminous crops, which, which, which take up uh, nitrogen and, and propel the plant to, to grow. That's the basic sort of 
sort of, uh, you know, 10,000 year history of, of, of farming. And, and farmers, I, I would imagine, for the most part, didn't understand the idea of soil fertility in a scientific way. They understood it in just a, a sort of intuitive way, which was that if soil is a bank and you're harvesting a crop, you're sort of taking a, uh, a withdrawal from the bank. And you need then to make a deposit back to the bank if you want to have another withdrawal, another harvest of wheat for the following year. Okay, so I think, I think generally speaking, all of us in this room understand that. What I wanted to understand is, I wanted to understand this for, for a book that I'm writing especially, is, is how, how does this work scientifically? Like, especially in terms of sort of restoring this fertility, how does the most, we always hear the most fertile soils produce the most healthy plants and, and the most delicious food. Yeah, right. But how does that work exactly scientifically? I had no idea. So I did some homework and uh, I took a, you know, a few, few minutes and I produced like this little diagram. <laughs> That's a joke. I, uh, I stole this diagram from the internet. Everything about this diagram, I could tell you in a haiku. <laughs> so let me, let me try and give you my, uh, my version of it. Okay. Soil. Okay, a tree. Wheat. Uh, I don't know, shrubs. Grasses, an animal. <laughs> this is the kind of shit that, that, that teachers could lose tenure over, but <laughs> no trials. Okay, so we, we basically all know that like trees, trees, uh, you know, leaves fall and, 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 and plants die and, and there's manure. And it, and it falls basically to the, to, the, to the top of the soil. That would be soil material. And I think we all basically understand that there are soil organisms that, that bring the material from the top of the soil down. We're only talking about a foot here. Uh, that's topsoil. That's where all the action is. It's sort of like the ocean. Everything below that is, is, is interesting, but not nearly as much as this, this foot of topsoil. Okay, so, so what I missed, and what maybe all of you are missing, is the action in between. How do you get soil organic material into becoming soil organic matter, this humic layer that feeds the plants? Now, now Harold talked about all of the stuff that's happening above the soil. It's fantastically interesting. And, and about 99% of it, I had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, uh, but below the soil, it is the most interesting stuff I have ever learned. And it made me wonder why I go to college when I was stupid. Because I took the wrong courses. I have learned, I, again, I'm researching for, for my book, and, and, and this, is, this isn't just for the book, this is just eight years of, 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 
of working with some of the best farmers, especially Jack Algier, who's the, who's the head farmer at Stone Barns. Uh, I've working, been working side by side with him for, for many, many years. And he's been talking about this, this, this action, this, this community. And it's not a, often a nice community. He often describes that as a war. This warlike community that's happening between the top of the soil and the organic matter and, and the interactions that are having place to convert this material into matter. There are literally billions of organisms, billions, billions of organisms. So in a teaspoon of, uh, of uh, in a teaspoon, in a teaspoon, I'll say this one more time, in a teaspoon of healthy organic soil, there is over a million soil organisms, over a million in a teaspoon. This is, this is like China. This is a vibrant <laughs> community, alive. <laughs> and, and so what I wanted to do through, through Jack Algier, who's really patiently, patiently, uh, you know, all the science courses I took, I fell asleep through. So he has taken me through the beginning to, to you know, he's kind of given up on me at this point, but this is what I've taken out. This is what I've taken, uh, taken from. So look, here's a, here's a wheat plant. A healthy, a healthy uh, 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 wheat that has extensive root systems. And let's say we harvest the wheat. Okay, you get you get a, a, a root that's that's dead. All right, and along comes a nematode. For example, a nematode eats the dead root. It looks delicious and healthy, and it eats the even though it's dead, it eats. The, 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 the dead root, and the nematode produce, produces an exudate, a waste product. And there's a bacteria in the vicinity, and the bacteria sees that exudate, and it eats that exudate. And now the bacteria creates an exudate. And at the same time, by chance, a worm is coming down from the soil, and it sees the bacteria it sees the exudate, it eats both. And the worm creates an exudate. And something else comes along and eats that exudate and creates another exudate. Another, and then another, and so forth. So along this continuum is refinement after refinement after refinement after refinement. A plant, let's say, that eats, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 I don't know, another, uh, I'm sorry, an organism that, apply, let's say a, an animal that eats a plant creates a waste that's not the plant, right? It creates a refinement of that plant, a refinement. That's key. And that's what's happening in the soil. Refinement after refinement after refinement. Why is that important? It's important because the refinement, the, the continuous uh, uh, um, uh, refining of all these minerals and everything else that is in the soil, these molecules, end up, end up creating, in the end, a better diet for the plant. Refinement after refinement after refinement ends up feeding. It's much like what chefs do. We, uh, you know, not to, not to point all the vectors at me in, in this, but, but we, we, end up, we end up refining flavors. We end up providing better nutrition. We end up providing refined and better flavors to our diners. This is what's happening below the soil. When we look at a beautiful landscape, we are only seeing 50% of the action. And now that I've learned about the soil, I would say that that's, that's a little bit exaggerated. 
nothing compared to what's going on below the soil, in a healthy soil. And the key here is that you want more refinement because the more refinement you have, the better opportunity you have to feed the plant. The better opportunity you have to feed the plant, the better and healthier the plant is. The better and healthier the plant is, the better flavor you get. Because the plant is taking these molecules of the exudates and other, other happenings in the soil, and it's converting these exudates into phytonutrients. The phytonutrients are key for flavor. They are flavor. They're the esters. They're the amino acids. They're the flavonoids. Flavonoids are flavors. So without the refinement, without this, this, this war that's going on in the soil, as Jack Algier constantly tells me, this war. By the way, it, it's not just this, this nice linear uh, uh, description. It's also, you know, uh, uh, worms eating the bacteria, but it's also nematodes turning on each other. Super nematodes. Uh, nematodes, sorry, nematodes. Nematodes are turning on each other. They're hungry or they look uh, perfect or the soil conditions are such that, that they want to eat. So all of a sudden, you create an exudate from, from eating a nematode. That's a different kind of refinement. The point is, and, and honestly, I, and I've, tried, I've spent so long trying to understand this for, for, the, for the book I'm writing, nobody really understands this. Like really, truly, nobody really understands how this all works. It's so many variables. It depends on the conditions of the soil, it depends on the weather conditions, it depends on the plants. But the idea, the general, sort of the world view of this is that the more life there is in the soil, the more abundance of life there is in the soil, the more refinement. The more refinement, the better the plant eats. The better the plant eats, the better it can take up those the, and, and convert to phytonutrients, the better we're going to taste these, these flavors. That's the key. So I gave you a, 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 a sort of overview of some of the, the levels of, of organisms in the soil. Um, actually, before I get here, I'll just say that, that what happens um, when we when we don't respect the, the, uh, the life of the soil. When, when people say teeming with life, they mean it. It's really teeming with life. So, so what happens next in sort of the history of, of agriculture, and again, as it, as it pertains to flavor, I'm going to, to try and um, uh, knock this down to sort of three very important events that happened uh, uh, along the way to make this system obsolete. Three, okay? Again, it's, uh, this, is a, this is a real refinement. Um, for the sake of the time, it's useful. Um, the first is in 1840, Eustace von Liebig. Von Liebig, this German chemist, reduced the understanding of fertility to three nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, NPK in shorthand. This was revolutionary. Liebig say, ba basically said, you don't need all of this. You don't need the soil. The soil can become, to a certain extent, somewhat of a substrate. You can feed the plant, whatever you're growing, directly through the roots. All the plant needs to grow, and, and to a certain extent grow healthfully, although we can come back to what the definition of health is, all the plant needs to grow is nitrogen, 
phosphorus, and potassium. And he was right. He was right. I think from a scientific point of view, it's less interesting than looking at, again, from this philosophical point of view. You, you remove the soil from the process of creating healthy plants and creating flavor, and you think about, uh, you think about what we eat in terms of feeding the plant, not the soil. Key. Key, key philosophical difference. The second is in, in 1909, Fritz Haber and Carl Bosch uh, in, uh, discover a way to, to fix nitrogen from the atmosphere into this highly, uh, this highly concentrated chemical form, liquid and ammonia. It is the raw material for making nitrogen fertilizer. Just to give you uh, uh, a perspective on this, Vaclav Shmiel, who's the, the famous historian author, said that, <coughs> said that recently said that the most important discovery of the 20th century, the single most important discovery of the 20th century. Now you're thinking, you're thinking what? You're thinking the airplane, space travel, TV, YouTube. <laughs> he argued it's in fact this, this discovery. Synthetic N, synthetic nitrogen. Because today, one-third at least of the world owes its existence to synthetic nitrogen. Before this discovery, before the discovery, food production was limited to how much N, how much nitrogen bacteria or lightning storms could fix nitrogen from the air. Okay, so we have Liebig and we have Haber. In other words, we have the philosophy, the understanding, we have the technology. All we need is the manufacturing capability. And that came with the end of World War II because the same munitions factories that produced so abundantly for the war effort were converted, in many cases literally overnight, it's a fascinating story, to producing chemical fertilizer. Ammonia nitrate is the key ingredient in explosives. And it also gives that, that the plant the nice boost uh, uh, of nitrogen, which makes it grow very fast. As long as there's nitrogen in the air, and there is a lot of it in the air, this is not a problem. And as long as there is energy to run these, 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 these ammonia factories, and at that point when we began this, there were plenty of fossil fuels to do that, Farmers were quite suddenly, quite suddenly freed from the constraints of animal manure and these laborious rotation crops that I described briefly before. For the purposes of flavor, it, both, these, these discoveries were at, uh, both these discoveries and then the manufacturing capability were absolutely critical because you go from a system of insoluble, you, you, go to the, you go from an insoluble system to a soluble system. So in other words, I'll come back to the board. You have your chemical, this is a person. Let me get another color chalk here to make this point. Oh, oh, oh. You insert your chemical fertilizer directly to the root, to the plant. And you bypass the soil. 
It's both a brilliant story and also a very sad story. I have a slide here that depicts this. Worked on it very hard. Here's the soil and all the soil microorganisms. Here's your, <laughs> here's your fertilizer guy. And boom. So here's what I've taken out of the experience of learning about soil and flavor. For one thing, synthetic N and this NPK system have allowed us farmers to bypass the complexity of the soil, the community, the very large and very complex and very interesting community of soil organisms to bypass that and feed directly to the plant in a soluble system. That's one. And number two, by the way, the, 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 the one I should just say, uh, uh, sorry, the, the one I should just say in this is that uh, uh, a farmer that I respect very much, Elliot Coleman, summed it up for me very well and he said, the idea that we could ever substitute a few soluble elements, MPK and others, for a whole living system is like thinking an intravenous needle could administer a delicious meal. And it's true. Okay, so you bypass this community. That's one. And then the second thing I learned is that we have an obsession, I think, or I do, with chemical agriculture because we think, again intuitively, that chemicals are not something we want to eat. Who wants to eat chemicals? Right? But I would suggest to you I don't want to eat chemicals either, but I would suggest to you that the far greater problem here is the starvation of this whole community of soil microorganisms. That's the real crime here in conventional agriculture. Conventional agriculture feeds 98% of what we eat. I mean, 98% of what you eat, it has some chemical additive to the process. And, and I would submit to you that, that we are too focused on eating the chemical and not enough focused on the fact that it's not the poisoning of the soil or, or ourselves directly, it's the starvation of these soil organisms that then leads to a lack of flavor. Okay, getting back to wheat, NPK and synthetic nitrogen did not just transform the farming of wheat, it transformed the type of wheat we farmed. Synthetic nitrogen was so powerful, so unbelievable, it's in a bomb, remember, it's so powerful that the stalks of wheat would shoot up and the amount of seed, the weight of the seed, would make when the wind blew or the rain came, the wheat would just fall over. This made it impossible to efficiently harvest wheat. Along comes Norman Borlaug. And what did Norman Dor Borlaug do? Norman Borlaug crossed wheat with a dwarf wheat from Japan, originally from Japan, and he created the semi-dwarf hybrid. And he created a semi-dwarf hybrid that specifically could work in the MPK system that would not fall over as it grew very quickly. And that alone, that, 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 that small fact alone, transformed the way we grew wheat. Today, 99% of the wheat grown in the world is of Borlaugian or post-Borlaugian 
breeding technology. And as that slide shows on the right, most of our wheat has been concentrated because now, because of the NPK uh, uh, structure, you can grow in monocultures. Most of our wheat is, is concentrated in the wheat belt in the Midwest. Okay, two broad things came out of this. One, dwarf wheat meant shorter root systems. One thing I left out of our, 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 our my, my, uh, my bastardization of what happens uh, in soil life. We talk, about, we talk about soil life, you often hear about the chemical structure of soil life. What's the chemical structure? The chemical structure is what, 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 these, what all these organisms are eating. And in fact, in a healthy soil, it's like the periodic table at their, at their table. Literally, the periodic table at their dining table. They can eat whatever they want, when they want depending on the conditions of the plant, depending on the conditions of the weather, depending on the, the conditions of the soil. And we hear with, with soil health about biology. Well, that's biology, of course, is the, is the, the, the cycle of life that we talked, that, that, that I mentioned. But the, the third thing is the physical structure of the soil, the physical structure. And the physical structure of the soil is as important, as important as the biology and the chemistry. And again, it goes back to that wheat with the healthy root system. Because without the healthy root system, you don't get the byways and the, and the roadways and the, the highways and the, the, the like side streets that allow these organisms to penetrate the soil and create these exudates and create this refinement for flavor. So if you don't have the root system, you don't have the soil life to create the flavors for the plant. And in the borlog type system, you had dwarf wheat and you had by, by definition, shorter root systems below ground. Jack Algier, that farmer at Somars, he, 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 he said it to me just the other day, so clearly he said, 50% of the biomass of plants above ground is represented below ground, 50%. We see half the freaking story when we look out at a, at, a, at a beautiful landscape. The other half of the story, and I'm <coughs> suggesting today, tonight, it's much more interesting. In the, it, for the purposes of wheat, with the, the dwarf wheat, we don't get the root system and therefore don't get the aeration in the soil and therefore don't get these, these roadways for the organisms to thrive and eat and refine those molecules for the potential for flavor in the wheat. Okay, so in the history of wheat, here's the perfect storm. You have the MPK system, you have the technology, you have the manufacturing capability, and now you have the scientific breeding in the 50s that brought us to where we are today, which is that wheat is, for the most part, nameless. It is, for the most part, nutritionless. And, for our, our concerns tonight, it has never produced anything delicious to eat. Luckily, there are farmers who have opted out of this system. One of them is Klaus Martens, who supplies the restaurant in Blue Hill. Uh, I am an enormous fan of Klaus Martens, um, in part because I, I, I absolutely think he's a genius. Um, and I'm going to give you one example uh, in a minute that, that, to me, shows his genius. Um, and I'll try and prove it to you. But Klaus, uh, Klaus farms 1,500 acres in the, in the Finger Lakes. Uh, 200 years ago, before we settled the Great Plains, that, that wheat belt that I showed you in the slide before, 
This was the wheat belt, New York State, right, right near here. More wheat was grown here than anywhere in the world. Rochester, I've learned since studying the book, was the is the flower city. I always thought flower was F-L-O-W-E-R. It's not. It's F-L-O-U-R, the flower city. N N Nabisco, Nabisco, the, the, the baking company, National Baking Company. Its locations were in Buffalo because Buffalo was the hub that supplied the rest of the world with wheat, principally from New York State until we moved to the Midwest. So, so Klaus's land, where he is in Penya, New York, in the, in the heart of the Finger Lakes, has a history of growing fantastic grains and especially fantastic wheat. Here's why I think Klaus is so, so brilliant. He may start a field with a rotation of wheat. Or, I'm, I, you know, when you look at rotations, you can start anywhere, but we're starting with wheat because that's what we're talking about. He will harvest the wheat, and he will follow that rotation the next, the next year with clover. Why clover? He wants clover to replace wheat, to follow wheat, because he wants the nitrogen in the soil. Clover is, among all the plants, the best for fixing nitrogen into the, the, the soil system. Not in the, in the, in the Fritz Haber uh, synthetic way, but in, in the natural way. It's famous for that. And he would follow, or he has followed, from t I'm taking a sort of typical rotation, but there are no typical rotations. I'm taking one rotation from the time I was there. Uh, these rotations change all the time, depending on the weather, depending on the soil conditions. In fact, if anything, Klaus is listening to what the soil is saying. And what the soil was saying in this particular rotation was that he had a lot of nitrogen in the soil. So he followed with corn. Why would he follow with corn? He followed with corn because corn is the great user of nitrogen. One of the great problems in conventional agriculture is how much nitrogen uh, corn uses uh, and how much nitrogen leaches out into our rivers, especially the Mississippi River, and then goes down into the, Mississippi, into the Gulf of Mexico and pollutes the ocean. This is for a different lecture. Uh, but from Klaus's point of view, he uses no chemicals, so he's organic, so he's got, he's got the nitrogen in the soil, so boom, he goes to organic corn because organic corn is so profitable for his farm. And, and, in key point here, he doesn't just harvest the corn and the, um, uh, 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 the um, not the shaft, but what am I thinking of? I'm looking at my wife. Stock, thank you. He doesn't just harvest, most people harvest the corn and then take the stalk and make it into, into, into straw or other uses. He takes the straw and plows it back in. And he plows it back in because that provides carbon, much needed carbon for the soil. I remember after a corn harvest was up there and I, I assumed, only because I'd just been learning about this, I assumed that he followed corn with, with soybeans. That's what everyone essentially in the world does now. They follow corn harvest with soybean harvest, or they do two harvests of corn together, which is only possible because of NPK, but they often follow, whether it's two or even three in some places, they often follow with soybeans. And when I said, after you harvest the corn, so you're going with soybeans, he leaned back in his chair and crossed his arms, and he said, nope, going with mustard. Now, he said that as if he had just he just sired his first son, you know? It's like, he was so proud of this. I had no idea what he was talking about. But in learning the system, it turned out that he had noticed little yellow flowers that were popping up all over his cornfield. And what that suggested to him was that he had a deficiency in sulfur. 
So instead of going right to soybeans, which would have been the most profitable thing to do, the most profitable thing to do, he is more concerned with those soil organisms. And he knows if there's a deficiency in soil, there's a deficiency of microorganisms in the soil. So he planted mustard. And mustard, famously, once you plow it in, back into the soil, provides the sulfur that's missing from the last crop. So he got his sulfur, he planted soybeans, and on and on. Oats. By the way, he doesn't just farm grains and wheat, wheat and grains. He's doing pigs and, and, and dairy cattle and chickens, and he's doing uh, beef cattle. And at the end of the day, he is producing some of the healthiest soil I've ever seen. Now, I'm no soil expert. I, I, not at all. But often when I'm at his farm, and I'm at his farm often enough lately, uh, he pulls up the soil, and you can see. I mean, you literally see. It's like looking at, uh, you know, at, 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 a, at, a, at a beautiful ham that we're about to see versus a conventional ham. You can just see it right off the bat. It is aerated soil. It is soil that's allowed these microorganisms and organisms in the soil to thrive. And what we're looking at here is a picture that I love so much because of these mycorrhizal uh, 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 attachments to these, uh, to these roots that are sucking, literally sucking like a straw into the soil for the nutrients for the plant. If you don't have the mycorrhizal associations, you really don't have a healthy plant. And he, he, every time you turn up, every time he goes through a field and turns up the soil, it's amazing what you uncover. It's right there in front of you. It's not like you need a microscope uh, or anything like that. By the way, I just would say just for a moment, um, if you're thinking that Klaus is this old school farmer, which is how I, I approach this whole subject, he is so far from it. And one of the things that drives him crazy is when he says, when he talks about his farming methods, and people say, oh, you're farming just like my grandfather used to farm. No, he's not. <laughs> no, he's not. Like, like we, our conception of what, what is modern, what is brilliant, what is, what is technically innovative is so screwed up. And, and when, you, when you spend time with Klaus, you realize that the Bill Gates of the world, even the Stephen Jobs of the world, I mean, you know, as brilliant as they are, they are developing things that you know, we, can, we can use in our daily lives, that we can touch and feel. But when you spend a day, a week, with Klaus, you realize that there is a brilliance that we absolutely don't understand. And, and his reading, intuitive, and, and using the most modern science to test his soil is some of the most brilliant applications. Of, of, of science and a good indication of where we might look for the future of food. Not so much back, because back, back for the most part means bad farming, for the most part. It's good farming, it got us all here, we're all, we're all living, but to a certain extent, it was lacking in an understanding of this, of this, of this community of soil that needed to be fed, and fed, fed right. And, and this is why, Klaus, I, I've, I've, Adam and who I'm about to introduce uh, at, at Somers have so, so clung to him because he's, the flavors of what he produces are so unbelievable. And what you realize is that the end game, the, the beginning game, the end game, however you look at it, it's all about the soil for him. And if you take care of the soil, you take care of the flavors. Okay, so not only is he growing wheat, post-Borlaug style wheat, he's growing very, very old wheat, um, wheat like Frederick and Bavarian spelt, uh, and 
for the sake of getting back to our bread loaf, he is um, growing emmer wheat, which uh, dates back 11,500 years BC. Uh, sorry, 11,500 BC. Um, the, the, the brilliance of emmer is that it makes terrific bread, delicious, delicious, flavorful bread. It also, for the purposes of Klaus, though he's a gastronome, like we all are, he's also a little bit more concerned with the soil. And it turns out that emmer wheat has root systems, that physical structure of the soil, that are five times as much, uh, three to five times as much, uh, uh, three to five times as great as any of the other wheats. So it really creates this aeration. It really creates this, this opportunity for the community to thrive below the soil and create great flavor. That's emmer wheat. Uh, that we're going to show you at the end of this, um, this talk uh, that you can look at um, on the way out. Uh, and we grind the emmer wheat uh, at the restaurant pretty much every day to make this brioche bread. Uh, we're doing it because the, the whole wheat that you buy in a supermarket, unless it's whole grain, if it's ground for you and packaged for you, it means that the germ has been removed. Well, let, let's, let me just back up. If you're buying white flour, you're only getting the endosperm. You're only getting the endosperm. The endosperm, nutritionally speaking, is like a zero. And from a flavor perspective, it's an equal zero. The flavor comes a little bit from the bran, a lot from the germ. And not surprisingly, the nutrients come from the germ as well in the oils and the vitamins and all those flavonoids. So, when you buy whole wheat from the supermarket, organic whole wheat from Whole Foods that's packaged, what you're buying is the bran and the endosperm. The, the, the germ is removed because the germ goes rancid very quickly. And so for shelf-stable life, what you're buying is the endosperm and the bran. But I, I submit to you that the, the great flavor of whole wheat is in the germ. And if you're not grinding whole wheat to make the bread, or not grinding whole wheat to make whatever you're making, you're not getting the full potential. You're not even getting half the potential of what wheat can deliver. Half the nutrition, I don't know about, we'll ask Harold after this, but, but I can tell you for flavor, you are, you are cutting yourself self short by, by a lot. Okay, let's look at the other half of this and we're gonna go a little bit quicker. Uh, there's the brioche, here's the, the ham, which is, which is spec. Uh, speck is a cured leg of ham, and I'm going to let Adam Kay again to uh, describe the difference. But but Adam Kay is our, our culinary director at Blue Hill. Um, I I think Adam is one of the besides being a friend and working for the for the company for for many 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 years, like uh, I don't know, 13 years at this point. Uh, he's he's also like the greatest of technicians, and he is also the first to admit that the wizardry that goes on with all of this charcuterie that he's involved with at both restaurants is dependent on what the pigs are eating. So before he comes up and describes what he does, I want to describe sort of the recipe of the recipe. What happens before those pigs get in his hands? And here again is this, this history deal. Like, like for thousands of years, for thousands and thousands of years, pigs were allowed, encouraged to roam forests for the most part because they were allowed to forage for their own food and they were encouraged to eat a diverse diet. 
over the last hundred years, as most of us know, the pig has gone from this, 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 this forest and, and landscape uh, to a kind of widget on an assembly line. So what I would like to just in, in, in one minute say is that there's a history here too, just like wheat. It's almost kind of like inevitable, but it's worth, worth talking about quickly that, that you, you look at the top left, the, the cheap fee, this is the Michael Pollan story that we, we now know thanks to him quite well. Uh, none of, none of the, the cheap fee, the monocultures of corn in this case, uh, would be possible without that MPK system, without synthetic nitrogen. Uh, that became the feed for animals. So instead of a diverse diet, pigs, cows, chickens, were raised on a corn diet. And then, of course, confinement feeding operations emerged as kind of an inevitability. The cheaper the feed, why would you uh, keep pigs outside to forage for what they want to eat and instead, instead uh, uh, narrow their, their dietary needs, like NPK, uh, and feed them in a feedlot. So in doing this, we've removed all of these variables, all these variables that animals eat in, in a forest scape or a landscape. And very importantly for the pig, we've ensured that by not moving them around, they get this endless supply of, of cheap, cheap grain. And that allows the pig to grain, gain weight quicker. And then of course, another inevitability is the other white meat. Um, well, we got rid of, just like the, 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 the wheat uh, uh, breed, uh, the post-Borlaug breed, we got rid of the older breeds and we instead selected for breeds that gained weight quickly and we, we selected for breeds in the 80s that had low fat content because the, the scare of the day was, was uh, cholesterol and actually the pork industry was frightened of what was happening in the chicken industry because everyone was switching from beef to chicken and they wanted a slice of the pie so they developed the other white meat and we got flavorless uh, pork. Now, um, there is a travesty uh, uh, in biblical proportions of what's happening with, with pigs raised in this country. We all sort of know there's 60 million pigs now raised in this country. 80% are one, of one breed. There's a whole talk about that. 80% of one breed. 95% uh, are raised uh, with, with you know, tens of thousands in, under one roof. But, but for, the, for the purposes of flavor, what, what I'd like to concentrate on is that we've had this, this collateral damage, this historic loss of flavor. The grain feed is, is concentrated and controlled. It's actually called a con concentrated controlled feed ration. That's a, a pride from the industry. And, and again, for the sake of, of, of flavor, what it does is it bypasses, bypasses the pig's foraging uh, 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 intuition, the pig's foraging needs, and feeds it exactly what it needs, similar to, to what a plant needs in the MPK system. Okay, so like Klaus, there are farmers out there, of course, that are opting out of this system. One of them is Craig Haney. He is at the Stone Barns where I w we work with Craig Haney on a daily basis. He is raising uh, Berkshires and Ossabaus, and he is raising them to the extent that he can in the wild. He is allowing them to forage for what they want to eat depending on the conditions of the day, depending on the conditions of the grass, depending on the breed, depending on the time of year. Increasingly, Craig is using, of the 80 acres at Stone Barns, he is using the 50 that are in forest for the foraging of the pigs. 
he will take pigs through uh, a, a semi-lush forest, he will, he will, he will take the, the, uh, the unproductive trees, the unproductive part of the forest, and, and, and weed it out. So that what you see here is a kind of covering, it's kind of a, like a savanna. You get the tree coverage from the sun, where the pigs don't want the burning sun, but what they want is a nice, diverse grass system to, to forage. And that's what he does. And the pigs come through. That's about two days of, of 10 or so pigs. They come through and they forage. And they forage the plants, and they forage the roots, and then they move on. And then Craig comes along and he plants a forage of diverse grasses. Diversity, again, diversity. Diversity below the soil, diversity above the soil. And the next time the pigs come through, they have a kind of buffet of different flavors, textures, uh, to eat on their, on, their, on their run through the forest again. And of course, it leads to a happy pig. <laughs> a happy pig uh, ultimately leads to uh, extraordinary flavor. So I'd like to turn this over just for a minute to Adam Kay. And, and once we, we harvest the pig, once we slaughter the pig, uh, we break the pig up into the components that we uh, serve in the dining room. And so I wanted to take one particular component, the leg, and have Adam take you through what, what uh, he's doing uh, in the kitchen. So Adam Kay, culinary director, take it away. Thank you. <clears throat> All right. Um, I'm going to quickly, very quickly, uh, talk to you a little bit about pork. Um, it's actually funny to hear myself being mic'd as I say that, as I'm the, the son of kosher caterers. Um, <laughs> but I, I've, I've never heard that on a PA system before. Um, so, wow. Um, uh, your rabbi can't hear this, don't yeah. worry. Um, anyway, so I, I, I kind of want to enter the kitchen quickly and, and spend a little bit of time talking about, uh, about these pigs that Dan has been talking to us about, uh, ultimately with the aim of giving you something to taste here tonight. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and well, that well, we should describe. That's something to look forward to. You are going to taste Adam's wizardry, wizardry at the end of uh, the session uh, as you file out. He's going to slice. He has already sliced a little bit. And he will slice more, some of his home cured specs. So as long as you listen, you get a taste. There you go. So um, uh, just talk a little bit about how that 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 sort of ribbon of, of cured pork meat ends up on that brioche. Um, I, I want to talk very quickly uh, about what goes on here. Um, and quickly, a definition. Spec, uh, for those of you who don't know, is, is traditionally it's a, a boneless, cured, uh, and smoked leg of pig from the Tyrol, from the, that northern part of Italy where it meets Austria. Very distinct. Um, you know, we're using the term somewhat liberally. Let's call this Hudson Valley, lower Hudson Valley spec. Um, <laughs> but, but the spirit of spec very much informs what, what the process is that I'm going to uh, talk to you. And this is about as close as we're going to get to an actual recipe uh, tonight. Um, and uh, we, we get a lot of pigs that come to the restaurant. We get three to four whole pigs a week, about 180 pounds of uh, 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 each carcass that comes in. And we have a very talented butcher who spends a lot of time breaking down these carcasses. And it's very painstaking work. Um, and, uh, you know, to, to, to watch him work, um, he's not a very big guy, firstly. He's, he's actually quite small. Um, and, but he's a true artist, and it's, it's in one sense, it's, it's sort of like um, this incredibly detailed, uh, finicky work, but then he also sort of watching him sort of maneuver these, these, uh, these carcasses around, uh, you know, it's sort of somewhere it falls on the spectrum between 
orthopedic surgery and alligator wrestling. It kind of <laughs> looks like occasionally at times. Uh, again, because he's not a big guy and these are very large, large animals. Anyway, he, he removes the, the leg of the pig, which is what we have here. And so I'm going to just run through these three different stages. This is a ham. This is the, the leg of uh, one of the legs of, of uh, hind legs of a pig. Um, he then will, will uh, butcher it by removing what on a, on a cow and beef would be the, the inside, uh, would be the, the top round. It's this inside muscle here uh, because we're going to bone out this leg. Uh, so he's got to expose that thigh bone, the femur. Very delicate work. He's got to remove that bone so all the connective tissue is still left intact so that the thing doesn't open up like a book. Uh, and you end up with a, a piece of meat that looks like this, all right, without the, the cure. Uh, at that point, it's ready to go into the cure. Cure is very basic. Uh, this, is, this, this, is, this is one of the oldest recipes probably people have been working on. Um, it's salt, it's sugar, it's a little bit of black pepper, uh, it's a lot of juniper, sort of a nod to the real Tyrolean spec, uh, and we add some baileys and, and, um, and some rosemary. Rosemary adds flavor. Rosemary also has some natural antioxidant properties which will prevent rancidity of the fat, uh, prevent it from oxidizing over the, the eight or nine months that this thing is going to be in the cellar. Um, it's uh, massaged into, into, the, into the ham, into the boneless ham. It goes into the fridge for about three weeks. We turn it every couple of days. Comes out, it's washed. We hang this in the fridge for another two weeks where it begins to dry and we kind of let that salt start to equalize throughout the mass of, uh, uh, of the, the muscle. At that point, we smoke it uh, for about five days. Uh, it's in a smoker on, on, on uh, sort of a mild smoking on northeast uh, hickory dust is what we use. Um, the smoke is obviously adding this very uh, distinct flavor. Again, it's sort of a nod to the, the Tyrolean spec, which is actually far more smoky and, and, and far more abrasive. Uh, but the smoke is actually adding another veneer of, uh, of protection in the curing process because of the, the antimicrobial and the antioxidant properties of smoke. Uh, that sort of coats the, the surface of this ham, again, helping preserve this. Again, that's something that people have been doing for, for thousands of years, smoking meat. Um, at that point, it goes into the curing cellar, which is maintained at, at pretty specific conditions. We keep it at about 50 to 52 degrees Fahrenheit, about 70% relative humidity, sort of ideal for, for aging and drying meat. Um, and then we wait, and we kind of wait, and we wait, and we wait, and Either Dan says, I need some spec, or I'll send Dan an email saying there's 15 spec that we've got to start using because they're all ready to go, and it ends up on that plate. Um, that's sort of the, the, the big macro process. On a slightly more specific level, what's going on? The, the main thing here is the salt, all right? This is, uh, this is salt in meat and fat and time, and, and the salt is really doing all the work here, um, which is sort of why I love this. You kind of provide the meat what it needs, give it some time, and, and you end up here. But the salt, is, uh, is drawing through osmotic pressure, is going to draw the water out of those, uh, the meat cells, right? Um, it's also going to do something else here, crucial. It's also going to draw the water out of all those organisms that could potentially spoil that, that piece of meat hanging there for those months, right? So it's, it's, it's dehydrating them. It is, uh, is, is re you know, uh, reducing the available water for them to multiply and proliferate. What's fascinating to me is also at that point, there's what's called a, a floral inversion, where so th those, those harmful bacteria are sort of moving out of the picture, uh, which allows certain other bacteria, uh, ha halophilic bacteria, these are, are salt-tolerant bacteria, 
your lactobacillus, your micrococcus, which are going to proliferate in this, uh, in this new environment, because they can. They, they, they can handle this high concentration of salt. And it's those very special bacteria which ultimately are going to contribute to the flavor, the aroma, and the color, very much the color as well. The, uh, the, 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 uh, those good bacteria will begin to break down the nitrates, which we add. We, we do add some, some sodium nitrate to this. Uh, break it down through a series of nitrate-reducing uh, nitrate reactions to nitric oxide, which will bind with the myoglobin in the meat and give a ham that distinctive rosy pink color, all right? Um, that is, is really the basics of what's going on here. I, I've, I've, you know, firstly, for me to be saying this with Harold McGee right there, everything I know about this, actually, I started learning from reading the, the works that, that Harold has done and some of the articles that he's written too, uh, about man, this. Um, but uh, just sort of by way of closing here, that, that this is really, um, there's a, a very well-known chef from California, a guy by the name of Paul Bertoli, who, who has written some great books about curing meat and, and has a very successful company now. Um, he calls this whole process, he, he talks about this as, as an act of, of patience and supreme transformation, which is really what it is. And I, I think in a way, very much mimics what, what yeah. Dan has been talking yeah. about up, up on, you know, in the field and in the forest. Um, but this is something that really time just takes care of on its own. It can't be rushed and, uh, and you know, hopefully it's something that you would ultimately see when you, when, when you taste this uh, tonight. I don't want to take any more no, time. No, that's perfect. Thank you very much. That's perfect. I, I think Thank I should you. start slicing. Adam is going to continue slicing uh, uh, for your uh, for your taste here. I'm just going to finish with um, with a little bit of an aside because I, I did give a talk about about pigs foraging and and thinning out the forest so the pigs could have all this 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 uh, you know forage that we plant for them. And though we're cutting down on the amount of grain we're bringing to the farm because they're getting all this forage, and we are uh, uh, encouraging the pigs' natural uh, uh, instinct to, to forage and eat what they want to eat at the certain points that they want to eat it, just like uh, one encourages plants to eat exactly what they want to eat uh, from the refinement uh, of these exudates. Um, uh, I often get the question, well, what do you mean? You thin out the forest. What do you do, kill healthy trees? Okay, so I just wanted to take you through this very quickly. We, we don't kill healthy trees. We kill trees that are unproductive. We kill trees that are on their way to dying. Uh, and what we do is make charcoal from them. Um, and uh, we then, from this charcoal, from the trees that we thinned out on the forest that then become uh, feed for the pigs, uh, we, we then uh, grill the pigs and other meat on this homemade charcoal. Uh, this led us... Uh, um, you know, ultimately to uh, trying to carbonize not just the wood from the forest, but the bones of the pig. Uh, this came from uh, one of the farmers at Stone Barns who uh, there was a fire alarm very late at night at one o'clock in the morning, and he saw us throwing away bones of pigs uh, post making sauces for the pig dishes. So we, we break down the animal as Adam Adam quickly described, we take the bones, we roast them, and then we make sauces, right? So after we make the sauces, all the flavor is extracted, and we throw the bones to the garbage. And, and this farmer came by and said, well, that, that, that's crazy. Why don't we, just like we're carbonizing the wood, why don't we carbonize the pig bone? And so now 
we carbonize the pig bone and lamb bones, and, and, and now we've led to corn cobs and uh, to even lobster bodies. And we grill pigs over carbonized pig bones. It's kind of like pig times two. <laughs> and it's, it's stunningly delicious in flavor. We are still in the process of learning how much carbonization do we put on these bones that still has some flavor that they can, they can infuse in the meat uh, as we're grilling. And we're, we're, we're finding that uh, we can get a lot of flavor, a lot of flavor from the bones, even post-sauce making. Uh, which to us is one of the more exciting things that's happening on the farm, and it's adding to the excitement of, uh, of, uh, of, of cooking at, uh, you know, so close to uh, a dynamic and, and, and brilliant uh, uh, set of farmers at, at Stone Barns. So, okay, just like kind of tie this up in a little knot, and then we'll, we'll open this to questions, and we can have some, some, some dialogue and some feedback, and maybe even with Harold, because I'd like to continue learning from him. But... Um, the reason that this dish, I think, works so well for, for a model of, of describing this kind of recipe before it comes in the kitchen, uh, this recipe of the recipe, is that spraying a plant with, with, with fertilizer, that, that MPK model we talked about, is, is equivalent or very similar to feeding a pig an all-grain diet, especially a confined pig. You are narrowing the, the uh, diet down to just the essential nutrients. You are doing in a pig diet what, what Liebig did for plants. Uh, he knew what made plants grow, and we know what makes pigs get fat. And if you, you, you uh, identify those essential uh, nutrients, uh, you will get a fat pig, and you will get, a, a, in essence, a fat plant. But is it a healthy plant, and is it a healthy pig? Well, I'm not a nutritionist, so I'm not going to go into that very fraught territory of, of nutrition. But I will say that you get a demonstratively less flavorful plant or pig. Um, and, and when you deprive a plant of its diversity, of its ability to eat when it wants to eat what it wants to eat, or you deprive a pig the diet that it wants to eat and has the availability to eat, uh, you are depriving us of a great degree of flavor. And I, s I mentioned before biblical proportions. Maybe I uh, overstated that. But uh, there, has, there, there is some truth to what our grandparents were talking about. And there is a way to recapture these flavors. And it's not. And that's why I think Klaus is such a great uh, farmer. Because it's not just looking back. If we're looking back, we're looking at a nostalgic view of, of what farming used to be. And our grandparents are probably right. Flavor is better. But we have the potential with all the science that we have available to us, to us now and all the, the, the knowledge and passion for, for food that we have uh, now, we have the potential to truly surpass flavors that, that our grandparents never experienced. Uh, and, and it's going to take some of the old world wisdom and it's going to take some of the newer scientific innovation. And the combination of the two, I believe, I believe, if we are invested in this, and that's why chefs are so important, but eaters are critical, just great eaters, because the future of this belongs to the gourmets. They belong to the gourmets because the gourmets are the ones that ultimately are a lot easier to feed. We are a lot less uh, obtrusive and a lot less damaging to the environment. And we, I believe, are a lot more nutritious to our, to our bodies. And for sure, 
we produce, we produce if we're going after it, the best flavor. So I, I'm, I, I, I'm not just doing this as like a, a gratuitous thing to leave on a high note. I, I believe that the future of eating is, is as, as Harold mentioned at the beginning of this, is we're at a renaissance period. And we have the potential to recapture and surpass some of the flavors that no one in the history uh, of, of eating has ever explored. And uh, uh, I, I urge you to be passionate about this and demand it because it's right here for the taking. Uh, and, and it's an exciting future. So thank you very much. We'll do questions now. Okay, so thanks to both Dan and Harold. And Harold, also, maybe you can answer questions. Yeah. Um, so go ahead. I thought that was a very fascinating talk um, because I'm always trying to eat more healthy food. And I've noticed that um, strawberries, for example, even organic strawberries don't seem to have flavor. Yeah. And given what I've heard from your talk, I'm wondering if you're striving for a, a, a very, uh, a permaculture, a natural permaculture um, a in a structured way where you can grow uh, fruits and vegetables, for example, um, in, a, in, a, in a kind of um, spontaneous manner, but with some structure to it to get it more flavorful. Like a wild strawberry. A wild strawberry is so tiny, but it's so yeah. it's tasty and, and sweet. Yeah, I think what you've hit on is what everybody uh, uh, thinks about and talks about, which is that wild, wild food. Uh, not cultivated food tastes more to taste truer of the thing that you're tasting and and that's true of of, of meats and vegetables and to a certain extent fruits I mean uh, that's not to say that breeding breeding good breeding can't uh, 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 exaggerate great flavors because of course they can uh, and and the breeding technology that we have available to us now is unbelievable I'm not talking about genetic engineering I'm just talking about natural breeding that we didn't know 40 years ago the problem, the problem is that breeders who supply the seeds for these great farmers that are out there trying to push for essentially good flavor, the breeders aren't getting the money they need to breed for great flavor. And I know that only because our land-grant universities, uh, uh, of which there is one in every state, our land-grant universities were created because there was a soil crisis in the early 1800s. There was a soil crisis in the 1800s because we were never good farmers in this country. We weren't. We, we have this sort of Jeffersonian ideal of this like yeoman farmer. It is such crap. We, we, we are a nation of bad farmers, actually. They are, they are the people who came over here, the Puritans, were, were, they didn't own land. Uh, they didn't farm. And they came over here, and what they found was this unbelievable soil fertility based on a natural resource. And they exhausted the natural resource very quickly. By the early 1800s, we had yield declines of massive amounts. So that, so that what, what ended up happening is the move out west, this manifest destiny that everyone talks about in our history, is really about soil depletion. We couldn't feed ourselves. And we slowly moved out west to virgin soil because virgin soil produces the kind of fertility I was talking about. So breeding, and I think you're exact, you hit on exactly the note, breeding can go of one of two ways. It can go towards high yield, mass uh, uh, supermarket consumer fruits and vegetables and meats, or it can go towards high flavor, which 
necessarily, to a certain extent, affects yield because they, a, an acre, an acre of soil will only produce so much flavor. There's a famous French expression, which I've forgotten for that, especially for wheat. A, an acre of, of wheat will only produce so much flavor. So the question is, what are you breeding for? Are you breeding for flavor? Are you breeding for a one-size-fits-all, high-yield uh, uh, agriculture food system? That's the question for the future. We're really at a crossroads. And, and when you hear people say, well, we've got to feed the world. We've got to feed the 9 billion people that are, that are coming by 2050. We hit 7 billion last week, supposedly, and we're headed to 9 billion very, very quickly. W how could you argue that you want to talk about flavor? You know, you want to talk about high yield. And, and the problem with high yield from a chef's perspective and from anyone who cares about food is that it's not going to produce anything good to eat, especially when it comes to wheat, especially when it comes to pig. But you could, by, 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 uh, by parable anyway, extend that to everything we eat, uh, that there is a, a direct, an inverse relationship between high yield and, and low flavor. It's just simply what the soil can produce in an acre. Uh, uh, per, per, per crop. So we have, we're at a real inflection point, and the question is, which direction do we go? And I think breeding is one place that you touch on that is very important. We're, what are we breeding for? What is our worldview? What do we want out of food? And, and my contention, and I mean, maybe even the point of lecture, and I, I should have said this from the outset, is that nutrition, nutrient density, del you know, nutritious food for our bodies that, that prevent the, the onset of diet-related diseases are completely connected to, to flavorful food. They're one and the same. So that if you are after, if you are just a, a glutton for great flavor, I mean, you're one of those, 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 those guys who come into the restaurant and they just, they just are like after only the, they, they want to eat, eat, eat great flavors. You know, I celebrate them because they couldn't care less about the environment. They couldn't care less about all the nutritional issues. They couldn't care less about the global political issues of feeding the world. They just want great flavor. And to a certain extent, they're right on the money because if you are concentrating on great flavor, I do believe that you're concentrating on great soil as I was trying to talk about today and you're concentrating on, on, on nutrient density. And ultimately, I think this is the path we need to go for um, more nutritious and, and, and luckily for us, a more uh, delicious future. Okay, sorry to go on so long. Peter. Hi, uh, thank you very much uh, for this lecture, which I, I think is probably the most important out of all of them for people to hear about our future. And I, um, just to follow up what you've said in this last answer, you know, we are, if you say we are at an inflection point, how do you make all these methods economical or affordable? Are we going to end up with a small population of people who can afford to eat at restaurants like yours that will yeah. chase flavor, and then, you know, we've got an extra, what, two, you know, we have seven billion people. You know, how, how do you reconcile that? How do you see uh, a possibility that we can actually fix the environmental problems and do so in an economically viable yeah, way that a, can have real impact. Yeah, no, that's a great question, a and, and it's a great question, and, and, and in many ways at the core of the issue. Uh, you know, isn't this an elitist uh, endeavor to, to, to pursue flavor? And to a certain extent, the way that our, our food system is set up now, the 98% of the food we eat is coming from conventional agriculture, uh, to a certain extent, you're exactly right. This is a very elitist, uh, very expensive way to enjoy food. The problem I have with it is that, uh, uh, is that what, what feeds the conventional system? What feeds the big food chain that feeds 98% of this country and increasingly more and more of uh, a growing world's population? What feeds it, and, and again, I'm, I'm, this is a whole lecture about, about being simplistic and reductive, but I'll, I'll go with it and I'll be simplistic and reductive here. The whole, the whole big food chain is based essentially on three things. 
One is cheap fossil fuels, and that's NPK. I mean, uh, essentially, it's, it's N, it's the synthetic nitrogen. Uh, it's cheap fossil fuels. And it's abundant water. It's a limitless, supposedly limitless supply of water that we have to feed all of these high-producing, high-yield crops. And the third, and, and ultimately maybe the most important and one that's not talked about nearly enough, is that we have this predictable, these predictable weather patterns. Uh, that, was, that came to light just a few years ago from the UN report that, that stated, and it didn't get any press, was that from 1960 to 1985, was some of the most stable weather patterns we've had in 2,000 years. 1960, 1985, that, that was essentially the Green Revolution. Uh, that this was a blip on the, on, the, on the weather map, that we are not for the future, whether you believe in global warming or not, put that aside, uh, that, that for the future, we are going to enter into a world where we cannot predict the weather, where the weather, you know, global weirding is what people refer to it as, but it's really just a normalcy that you can't predict the weather, and the weather that comes at you, the storms and the, and the rains, are going to be much more severe than they were for the last 25 years. So if you are growing rotations of just corn and soybeans, let's say, which is what 98% of Iowa is, corn and soybeans, you better have weather that's conducive to corn and soybeans. And I say that only because the corn and soybeans, to a certain extent, feeds the whole big food chain. I mean, that's cheap food. Cheap food is relying on these free ecological resources. Cheap fuel, which we, I think, all know now is not going to be cheap for the future. Whether that's in our lifetime, or our children's lifetime, or our grandchildren's lifetime is sort of beside the point. You know, biologically speaking, that's, that's nothing. Right? Water, we all know that, that, that these, these, these limitless uh, supplies of, of, of water are, are fraught in India, in China, in America, in Iowa, again, the Oleana Aquifer, the largest aquifer in the country, they say is, will be running out within 25 years. It's a frightening idea. So again, what, what you say is, is, is the cheaper food, and, and I would submit to you, I would agree with you that, that today what I'm talking about is expensive elitist food. For the future, it's not so expensive and elitist if the real costs of bringing this cheap food to market are brought to bear. And I believe that the environmental costs, the free ecological resources that bring these, these, the, the big food chain, that, that allows the big food chain to be so cheap, will not be cheap. And my only example is that last week, my, only, my most recent example, not my only example, my most recent example is Pilgrim's Pride. It's the second largest uh, poultry producer in the world. It lost $400 million last year. Lost $400 million, and they said it. I mean, they're not embarrassed, but they said it. Fuel prices. Fuel prices are, are grain prices, are corn prices. So if fuel is at, if, if petroleum is at $80 a barrel or $100 a barrel, or predictions are $250 a barrel, it doesn't work with this system that we have. The system is built on $30 a barrel. So, so again, just to, 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 to bring this to very, very clear light, when you say that, that what I've talked about is a, is, a, is a rarefied look at, you know, the future of food and, and, and deliciousness and, and flavor, all kind of this like a feed and elite uh, idea, you're right for right now to a certain extent. You can certainly get your caloric needs. Uh, I don't think you can get your nutritional needs, but you can get your caloric needs uh, very easily on a much cheaper diet. The question is, in our lifetime, in our children's lifetime, are we going to be able to eat a diet so cheaply if those free economic, those free ecological resources are not available to the paradigm for which, for which 90 plus percent of us eat? And my, my, my contention is that they won't be there. Uh, and we are, we are transitioning to a phase where 
we are going to have to become more regional, more local, and to a phase where, where, patrol, where fertilizers, like the ones I talked about, are way too expensive to use the way we're using. And the Klaus Martens, the farmer I talked about with the wheat rotations, is going to become de facto the way you have to farm because it's actually going to become cheaper. Uh, the price parity is going to be there. And we saw that for a blip in 2008 when, when fuel prices went to $140 a barrel. Uh, uh, grain prices went through the roof. Nobody could compete. The Pilgrim's Pride is one example now, but that was worldwide for a few months. And you saw, you saw, you saw political instability. You saw a lot of problems. And my, my, my feeling is that the future, again, who knows? When, if I could predict the price of oil, uh, you know, I wouldn't be standing here. Uh, so, so we're headed into a very different world of eating. And the question is, how do we want to gracefully uh, uh, move into that world? And, and I would suggest that looking at flavor is not such an elitist uh, 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 angle to look at. In fact, from a price parity standpoint for the future, it might be the most economical. Um, oh. <laughs> I was wondering, how do, you f how do you think that you can get the public to accept seasonality of their food as opposed to in the possible future being forced into it? Yeah, I, I, the seasonality is, uh, you know, I don't think it's as uh, big a problem anymore. I, 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 you know, regional local food, it, it forces a kind of seasonal, seasonal uh, local cuisine. Uh, that's what we're based on. And I, uh, you know, if you'd asked me that question five years ago, I would have, I would have said, you know, boy, that's the big uh, nut to, to overcome. But I, I think people nowadays know that, like, uh, they're not going to get tomatoes in January. And I think people know to a certain extent that they, they don't want them because they don't taste good. Uh, so I don't see that as much as a problem. What I see much more of a problem, to answer your question, is uh, the nutrient density, the, 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 the quest for organic. Uh, the quest for pesticide-free without thinking about the resiliency of an ecosystem. And the resiliency of an ecosystem is what I presented with that, that subsoil community that provides this, this, this refinement of, of, of molecules, this refinement, refinement, refinement that feeds a healthy plant that gives us the flavors. I, I believe there's so little research on that. Maybe Harold wants to talk about this a little bit more. He talked about the above soil. I was talking about the below soil. But I, I truly believe that we cannot be healthy. We cannot be healthy. Forgetting about going to an organic system, just without feeding the soil what it needs to allow the soil organisms to thrive. And so much more than just getting around the local issue of eating, which is a big one. Uh, I think we've, we've done pretty well with that. The, the issue is, uh, what is the, the resiliency of the soil? What is the resiliency of your farm? What kind of diversity do you have in your farm to provide the nutrients and the flavor uh, that we need? Because that's, that's very hard to, to overcome. People go to Whole Foods, uh, and I, I'm not, for, I'm not I, Whole Foods one of the sponsors this. They do an amazing job. Uh, uh, and I, I, I don't say that freely. I, I, be, I believe in Whole Foods. I really do. Uh, but I don't think that's the be-all and end-all of, of the future of great eating. I believe that the future of great eating is, is in nutrient-dense food. There are a lot of ways to test, taste, to, to test nutrient-dense food. I think the best way and the most surefire way is through flavor, which is why chefs and people who care about food are so important, because they're arbiters of this good taste. And they, and they don't take a, 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 you know, a, a farming method like organic, which has, to a certain extent, been dumbed down and treated as the future of food. Uh, the flavor is what truly tells you what's going on on the farm and especially in the soil. And that's where we need to look for the future. Um, uh, 
Uh, good evening, Chef. Um, I'm a student in the class, and I just want to say thank you so much for coming. I'll um, see you tomorrow morning, I hope. <laughs> tomorrow afternoon. Um, and uh, I just wanted to ask you, um, it, it seemed this issue that you talk about of um, uh, it's very multifaceted. It's, there's a sustainability involved, there's environmental science, there's this uh, aspect of agricultural research, um, I don't know, many different, and, and obviously farming and cooking itself. Um, so I guess if you, um, if you were going to tell a group of young people um, that if they care about this issue and they um, believe in, in trying to overcome some of the challenges you've talked about today in terms of improving our food system, um, where would you uh, say that they should uh, uh, point themselves? Yeah, I would go at the farmer's markets, you know, for first and foremost, because I do believe that regional and local uh, agriculture is one way to, uh, it's not the only way. There are a lot of bad local regional farmers, for sure. A lot of bad small family farmers, you know. We all talk about our love and devotion to the small family farmer. I do believe that become, comes out of the Jeffersonian ideal of the yeoman farmer and, and our, our, our trust and our, our, our love to a certain extent of, of people who, who till the earth. But there are a lot of, there are a lot of people who are small and, and, and do intensive stuff with vegetables and animals that just that aren't great. But for the most part, for the most part, uh, I do believe that, that uh, a connection and, a, and a, especially the purchasing power of, of local markets, whether it's organic food or not, uh, is, is the, the surefire best way at this moment in our history of what you're talking about to, to attack the problem. It's not the only way. I think we need to move beyond just local farmers markets. That represents, uh, uh, back 10 years ago when we opened Blue Hill, represented about 3% of agriculture today. Maybe it represents five. That's enormous jump, uh, huge. Uh, but it's not the, 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 the thing that's going to change agriculture. 95% of what we eat is still conventional. For the most part, it's still chemical agriculture. Uh, and, and we need to, to, to uh, uh, inspire uh, people like you and others uh, in a variety of different ways. I think there's a lot of whole ha uh, low-hanging fruit here. My, my shiv in this, uh, you know, my in is through flavor because, uh, because I think that, 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 that when, you, when you do look for flavor, you take care of all these other issues for which I am, I am passionate about. I'm an environmentalist like you are. You know, I'm a new, I, I like nutrition. Uh, you know, I don't want to get some diet-related disease either. But at the end of the day, I, I, I can only learn so much about that. What I, what I know quite well uh, is flavor. And I know that to have a delicious leg of pig, that pig has to be raised on some kind of diversity of diet. That pig, by definition, by definition, has to have had not just diversity of diet, but has to have had some kind of happiness in its life. It has to have. If it was a miserable pig from the moment it was born to the moment it died, we would taste it. We would. That's one of the serendipitous uh, things about being a chef in this, in this world of, of recognition about, about good agriculture is that the lines are, are very parallel. And so, you know, I, I don't want to answer your question too simply, but I would say that, that one way to, to get into this issue is pursue the best, educate your palate to the best possible flavors because the fast food chain will tell you that they have the best tasting cheeseburger or whatever, you know? It's like that stuff just is also arbitrary. You really need to follow people who, who, who have that, 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 uh, that taste perspective and then create your own. And uh, that's the truth. That, is, that cuts to the truth. And I, I say it one more time, there is no such thing as a great tasting vegetable, fruit, 
leg of pig if that vegetable, fruit, or leg of pig wasn't raised in the right ecology. And if you're raising in the right ecology, you're doing a whole hell of a lot uh, for the environmental well-being and resilience of our future and our children's future. So I hope that uh, that helps out. One more. Uh, hi. Um, first, I'm very excited about the pig leg coming from Pig Eating Nation. I haven't had a good pig in the last five years, so I'm oh, super, man. super Come excited. Oh, to Blue Hill. Oh, you'll have it tonight. You'll have it tonight on your way out. Uh, my question is that it's very easy to talk about local food somewhere in California where there's no snow for three or four months in a year. How in your restaurant, in your menu, how do you handle it? I know that your restaurant is in Manhattan and most of your producers coming from upstate New York. Does your menu reflect the seasonal change of vegetables? Yeah. Does your menu, is your menu uh, has more root vegetables say, yeah. in, yeah. in the when winter than it has in, yeah. in the summer? Yeah, when you're in Berkeley, it's very easy to talk about local agriculture and, and, and local foods. I, I get it. Boy, sometimes I wish I was in Berkeley, especially into the season we're heading into now. But, but I do believe that what we, in the Northeast anyway, don't talk about enough is the, the advantages of farming in the Northeast. Um, I'm going to give you one quick example here. Uh, the example would be of a carrot. Uh, Jack Algier, the farmer that I mentioned at Stone Barns, grows these unreal carrots. They're called mokum carrots. He grows them in the dead of winter. Uh, he grows them out in the field to a certain extent, but mostly in a greenhouse. Uh, and these mokum carrots, um, uh, we've always known to be, we look forward to them, right, for, from December through about uh, March. Stunningly delicious carrot, like you've never had a carrot before. Okay, so I've always talked about this carrot. Jack is always very proud of this carrot. And Jack decides, well, I want to test this carrot from a scientific point of view, you know, not just Dan Barber says it's a great carrot. I want to know, is it really a great carrot? So what does he do? He squeezes a little juice of the carrot one day, and he gets a BRICS reading. A BRICS reading is the amount of sugar, the parts per billion of sugar in the carrot. Uh, and on this particular day, it was a very freezing cold day in February, I'll never forget it, and uh, he came in the kitchen, and he was literally levitated. Why was he levitated? Uh, he was levitated because he got a BRICS reading of 16.9. 16.9. 16.9 means that the carrot was almost 17% pure sugar. It's like a candy bar. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and this is in the middle of, of February. What that suggests, and what people are suggesting more and more, is that a BRICS reading is one reading, it's not the only one, but it's one reading that corresponds to those phytonutrients that I talked about before. In order to have uh, a high BRICS carrot, you have to have the, the, the availability of, of all, this, all these food sources in the soil to feed the carrot what it wants. It really has to be the perfect conditions. Uh, and uh, 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 the flavor, the sweetness, will, will be exasperated, will be, will be through the roof, in part, in part, and this is the advantage of northeast farming, and this holds true of all root vegetables, it holds true of Brussels sprouts, of cabbage, of kale, is that in the winter when the freezing temperatures come, uh, uh, that plant needs to convert starches to sugars. Why does it convert starches to sugars? It converts starches to sugars. I bet Harold could tell you this better than me. But actually, a, a plant physiologist told me, and he was a poet, and he said it this way. It, it converts starches to sugars because it's preventing the, the molecules in the plant from freezing. 
So like you make ice cream, you convert starches to sugars to raise the body temperature. As it gets colder and colder, you're raising the body temperature in the plant to prevent ice crystallization. And what he's added to me, and I think it was so profound, is that what you taste is sweetness, what the plant is telling you is it doesn't want to die. <laughs> this is not something that a carrot in Berkeley has to deal with. We then took a carrot, an organic carrot, by the way, an organic carrot, from the walk-in refrigerator that very same day. Why did we take a carrot from a walk-in refrigerator that very same day? We took a carrot from a walk-in refrigerator because we had some. Jack, uh, the Stone Barns farmer, doesn't supply 100% of our carrots. We also use carrots for stocks and sauces and soups, and we tend to buy carrots from elsewhere because the carrots from our own farm, which, which he sells to us, are so frightfully expensive. This goes to the elitist question. The 16.9 Mokum carrot is an expensive carrot, for sure. No, 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 I'm not shy about that. I, I, I want to celebrate it because it shows that a organic carrot from Oaxaca, Mexico, which is the one we brought out to test, is about 60% cheaper than this mokum carrot. About 60% cheaper, again, in the middle of February. Mokum carrot, expensive, organic, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Oaxacan carrot, expensive, beautiful carrot that you would find in high-end restaurants and high-end uh, uh, food stores. We took a squeeze of the, the bricks, and what do you think the bricks level was on this? Uh, what is it? Four, I hear? Six, eight, 0, 0.0. <coughs> An undetectable amount of sugar in the carrot. You think that was possible? I didn't. Neither did Jack the farmer. <laughs> <laughs> but what that shows you is that you could be organic, but you could not have the soil organism life. You could not have all the, the, the things that we talked about and uh, Harold talked about. Uh, and especially, you cannot have the cold to convert those starches to sugars to raise the, 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 the flavors for us. So there are huge advantages to, to farming in the Northeast. It's true that we probably can't feed the entire Northeast uh, from, from farming in the middle of the winter, but I do believe it's a completely unexplored territory. And I believe the advantage, we used to do it, and the advantages of doing it uh, from a nutrient perspective and from a flavor perspective, if you take this carrot as an example, far outweigh uh, the carrot, the transcontinental carrot, or the carrot from, from Oaxaca and increasingly beyond. Uh, we can feed ourselves very nutritious. We have, we're not going to have the tomatoes and we're not going to have uh, uh, the kinds of things that we enjoy in the summer, but, but increasingly because of the knowledge that's out there, I don't think we want them. Uh, I think what we want is true flavor, and, and carrots grown in the middle of winter in the Northeast is a blessing of, 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 of the winter weather, and we should celebrate it. So now that we understand why we like winter so much, <laughs> let's thank Dan one more time. Thank you. Thank you.